Not long ago, I had a chance to talk to an unbeliever. Uh, I'll, I'll label him an unbeliever. I'm not exactly sure. We didn't get it all sorted through, but um, just the Lord gave me a great deal of freedom that, that particular time to, to start talking to this young man about faith. And uh, it was interesting because we got a little ways into it, and then he kind of stopped me. It's like, you know, okay, gone a little too far here. I don't need to talk anymore about this. But the interesting thing was he thanked me, and it really came across very sincere. It's like, hey, you know, kind of like putting it into this conversation, but I do want to thank you because I know that you mean this well. I know that you mean this for my good and that you have a sincere interest in, 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 in me and my happiness and so forth. So I thought that was kind of cool. You hear this from time to time. I think about Christopher Hitchens, you know, the great atheist. I hate putting the word great and atheist together. But anyway, he was a very prominent atheist, we shall say. And uh, he, he died of cancer after a long uh, trial of that. And, uh, and there were Christians that, that he knew, that he had debated, that were reaching out to him and saying, look, I'm praying for you. And I remember him saying that it meant something to him, even though the, the, he didn't believe in God, he didn't believe their prayers were actually arriving anywhere. But he thought that that, that, that was neat. That, that they would care for him in that way. My point is, we shouldn't give up on atheists we, uh, or skeptics uh, in this case. Let's, let us never give up on skeptics. We conclude Paul's second defense at Caesarea here today to catch you up if you haven't been with us or if you've just uh, not been paying attention. Paul's been giving his defense before the, the new governor that came in after Felix. Uh, Festus was the man's name. And, uh, and he's there and Agrippa II is there and Agrippa's sister Bernice is there. And Paul is sort of wrapping up his testimony. And we have here kind of a meaty gospel sandwich between two slices of skeptical, okay? So you get, that's how the passage kind of works for us. We get the skeptical slice at the beginning, and that's, that's Festus, and then you get Paul defending the gospel, and then you have skeptical Agrippa at the end. Are you kind of sandwiched in there? You get, you get where we're going with that? Yes? Okay. So after 2,000 years and the gospel spreading throughout most of the known world, there are, believe it or not, still skeptics. Have you, have you ever run into one? One born every moment. And so what I want to do today is, is just encourage you with the word of God that we should not give up. I'm not saying that we'll win every argument or win every skeptic over to faith, but we should not give up. First of all, because we speak the truth. We speak truth. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Okay, Festus, tell us how you really feel about this, huh? Does this come across as a little bit rude, like you're there giving your defense in a court of law and somebody just shouts you down? Well, actually, you know, I think it was Bach that brought this out in one of the commentaries that I was looking at. Um, that's what the Supreme Court does as well. Have you ever... I don't follow the Supreme Court closely, but I guess if you're, you're arguing your case before the Supreme Court, you got the nine justices there. If one of them has ish, an issue with something you're saying, they'll just stop you and interrupt you like that. Hey, dude, what are you saying here? Explain yourself. Make that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't, it, you know, this, this, is, this was Festus's role. He's putting Paul on the spot. And, uh, and he's calling him insane. <laughs> he's telling him he's out of his, out of his gourd, which seems rude. Uh, to say that to a person. 
While at the same time, I don't know if you caught on to the fact that there's a note of respect within that. Have you ever had somebody respectfully call you insane? Because that's what's going on here. It's like, I don't think you're just average, run-of-the-mill, you know, derelict, homeless person insane. I think you're really smart insane. You're so intellectual. You're so smart. I mean, you think about Paul, his great learning from his childhood on with the greatest minds of of the day. He could speak multiple languages. He was able to quote philosophers. Remember when he's talking to the Athenian philosophers and he's going toe-to-toe with them? They call him a seed picker because he's not a purist uh, from their standpoint, but he's able to go toe-to-toe with them. He's able to, to, to speak so brilliantly and effectively um, what, what Festus is saying here is like you're not making, you're not making any sense. Your, your great learning has driven you over the edge. He couldn't accept the idea of, uh, of a resurrection. That, that was just foolishness to him. Paul writes uh, to the Corinthians, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. This is gibberish to Festus. The Romans did not even have a concept of a bodily resurrection. They were sort of the realists of their day. They looked at life and, you know, they saw people die on the battlefield and elsewhere. And, uh, they, you know, if you left them there long enough, they would just rot. You know, if you put them in the ground, they would just rot. And they figured that you were never coming back from that. They did believe in an afterlife, but it was kind of a, you know, wispy, ghost-like uh, afterlife. They did not believe in resurrection. And, uh, and, and yet here is Paul making his, uh, his argument. But Paul said, I am Not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. What is truth? Didn't a certain uh, Roman governor that had Festus's job before him ask that question at one point? What is truth? Well, when Paul says it's true, he's saying this is not something which is a myth. It it corresponds to that which is reality. Um, have you ever had a dream where, um, where you thought you uh, uh, saw something in the middle of the night and, uh, and you told it to someone the next day and you, you hoped that they would believe you? And, uh, and they're like, um, yeah, I get it. I get it. You, you had a dream or you thought you saw something there. Um, but the truth of the matter is that was a hallucination or, or that was a, a dream. But Paul... Paul saw Jesus when the sun was bright above in the middle of the day. The light shone brighter than the the sun itself. It It was a phenomenon witnessed by multiple people. They didn't see Jesus himself, but they saw the light that, that shone around them, and they heard the thunder that, as the voice, and yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was true. It was real. When we tell the gospel, we are not proclaiming something that we might call mythical truth. Have you ever run into that kind of a concept, that, that it's true, but it's a myth? It, it didn't really happen, but it's mythical, and in its mythology, it tells something which is true. Yeah, you familiar with that? Yeah, I'll never forget, I had a pastor once years ago, and uh, I don't think he was a believer. I don't honestly think he was a believer. And I was starting to pick up on that from the sermons he was preaching. I went to him and I said, do you believe in the, in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? And he went, um, bodily? Well, 
Does it have to be bodily? Couldn't it have just been sort of a spiritual resurrection and, and Jesus living on in the hearts and minds of his disciples? And I know, I'm like, no, it really sh- it, it should be bodily because that's what, that's, that's what happened. Jesus of Nazareth came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, he was buried, he rose on the third day and they saw him alive. That's not insanity. That is a genuine true, stands with reality sort of thing, and that is what Paul is proclaiming. We also speak rational words, rational words. In fairness, we could have put truth and rationality together. They're so close, so synonymous, that we could have just sort of had them as one point, but I thought, it, I thought it was worth bringing out this idea of rationality because there is something a little further or different there being expressed Rational is sort of the antonym of the insanity part. Like this is the, it's true, but it's also rational. It's not gibberish. It's it's not something that makes no sense. How many have ever spoken to someone that was probably certifiably clinically insane? Have you ever talked to such a person? Yes? How did that go? How did that go? Most of the time, now not always, some of them sound perfectly rational, but they're saying really wild and crazy stuff and they've been abducted by aliens or whatever the case may be, but most of the time, it's even hard to track with where they're going and and what they're saying. Like I pride myself in being able to hear and understand and comprehend what people are saying, but I've, I've talked to people where I, I, you know, I'm just listening to the tune and not the lyrics because it, it makes absolutely no sense. Paul isn't suggesting that his story here is easy to accept. The resurrection of Jesus is a miracle beyond all proportion. We accept that. But it's not gibberish. You will hear people who are antagonistic to Christianity compare faith in Christ to a flying spaghetti monster. How many have heard that old saw? You know, that they, they, they're people that supposedly worship a flying spaghetti monster and they don't really believe that there is such a thing. They're just, trying to, they're just trying to illustrate in their mind that what we believe is insane. And yet what we believe, what we believe about Jesus Christ's resurrection is ab- absolutely intelligible based on eyewitness accounts. It can be conveyed with clarity and precision and logic and rationality. Paul is confident that he's not speaking in in gibberish or the ramblings of a madman, and he throws that back at Festus. Thirdly, we speak boldly on the basis of evidence. Paul does something really interesting at this point, if you you pay attention to what kind of is happening here. He actually, as he's, he's talking to Festus, Festus is thrown down, you know, said that he's crazy. Paul responds, and then what Paul does, and this is kind of neat, he brings Agrippa in as kind of a witness, as a hostile witness for the defense. You know, you, you, know, you, get, you watch these things on TV and trials, and you know what a hostile witness is. It's the guy didn't say he wanted to be a witness for the defense, but they sort of force him into it. And Paul is doing that with Festus, which is really a gutsy move. It's a gutsy move. Before I read what he says, but I, I want you to think about this for a moment. If anything about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, anything that, G- that Paul is preaching or his own conversion, if any of these things were made up, then Agrippa is totally going to be able to call him on it. 
Think of how connected Agrippa is. He's part of the Herodian dynasty. He's been there. His family has been there. He's, been, he's been, come up in and been percolated in all of these stories and truths. I mean, he could have called Paul out. But Paul marshals him to testify concerning what he's saying. Look, For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. So Paul the prisoner here takes no prisoners. He's, he's aggressive in his arguments. He's proving to Festus by outing Agrippa, not as a follower of Christ, mind you, not as some sort of secret secret Christian here, but he's outing Agrippa as one who would know the facts with certainty. Anyone with the name Herod would have been acquainted with what happened when it came to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul knows that he knows. Paul's had a long association with the leadership in Jerusalem. So had Agrippa. So when Paul says, I know this, he knows it. He knows that these things are true and that that Herod is aware, at least, of the facts on the ground. There are two key pieces of evidence that Paul brings in response. First, he says, none of these things concerning Jesus had escaped his notice and that it was not done in a corner. What does that mean? Well, Paul's conversion, for one thing, was known to everyone. The Jews who were with him that day on the road to Damascus, were on the same mission. So you know that they had to have come home a week later or however many days later. Hey, where's Paul? Oh, yeah, or Saul. They would have said, Saul, where's Saul? Oh, yeah, that's a weird thing. We've got to tell you what happened. Well, what, you know, and then there's a bright light, no thunder, and we don't know, but, you know, they couldn't see. And then a couple days later, all at once he's a Christian. He's going around preaching Christ and saying these things to people. They would have known all of those particular facts. And again, you take the resurrection of Jesus. Everything that happened with regard to Christ was done publicly. It was during the Passover. Jerusalem was packed. I know this is like 25 years earlier, but this, this is not so far out of memory that they would have forgotten. And the trial, public trial for everyone, that Jesus was then crucified publicly. He was buried and against, you know, against their beliefs and against their desires, his, that the tomb was empty on the third day. And they had no body to prove otherwise. There was nothing they could say in answer to those things. And Herod knew all of that. And then he opens up kind of a second front in his invasion. He turns it to the prophets of the Old Testament. He doesn't get very far before Agrippa stops him. But he says, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Isn't that interesting? The truth concerning the Messiah, Jesus, was so clearly foretold in the Old Testament that Paul would have no problem showing by the Scriptures how it is that Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. And here's the funny thing. He thinks that Agrippa knows the Scripture well enough to have made those connections himself. Isn't that strange to think about? It's almost as, you know, remember Paul had told his his uh, conversion story. He'd given his testimony, and in that, Jesus said to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, Agrippa, though a notorious sinner, was a practicer of Judaism. 
he, he, he was bought, yeah, I mean, they weren't Jews originally, the Herods, they were Idumeans, but, but Agrippa is a believer in, in, the, in the scriptures. And Paul is confident that he knows the scripture well enough and has heard enough of these truths that connect the dots. Paul is pressing the skeptic hard, forcefully. Is that because Paul was such a force of nature, by the way? Well, yeah. <laughs> to some extent, that's true. But Paul was made of flesh and blood like you and I. He wasn't made of adamantium or vibranium or any of those you know, fi- fictional you know, elements or anything like that. He was speaking true words, rational words. Though the gospel has to be received by faith, it is not based on fantasy or myths or anything. It, it is based on true things, things which have evidence. And so we should preach those evidences boldly. You can feel, right, how Paul's pressing this? In English uh, literature back in the day, or English comp, I guess it'd be English comp. Did you ever have to write a persuasive speech? Did you persuade anyone? Everybody in the class was persuaded? Yes? No? Okay, but you know what one is, right? You, you, you muster your evidence, you bring your logic, you, you set it forth in writing, and the, and the idea is, is that you will persuade the reader. At least that's your attempt. Persuasive, uh, you know, it doesn't always work that people are persuaded, but at least you, that's what you're going for. Well, we speak persuasively. We speak persuasively. Look at, look at verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And the answer is, uh, yeah, yeah, I, 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 really, I really would like to do that. We don't know how Agrippa intoned this. It, it's interesting if you just play it through. You know how you can read things with different intonation? You can hear it different ways in your head. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to persuade me in just this brief time to become a Christian? <laughs> uh, there's that way, right? Or, whoa. Are you going to persuade? Like, like, whoa, this is, this is really getting to me. I have no clue. I don't, I don't know where he was at at this point. But the answer for Paul is, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going for. I remember a story by Corey Tinboom. I think it was in Hiding Place, though I'm not 100% sure now. It's been a few decades since I read this. But I remember, because it made an impression on me, she was released from prison by a clerical heir. That's what she came to find out later. She didn't know it at the time. But on the day of her release, they were standing and they were lined up. And she, of course, shared her faith with all of their fellow prisoners. And uh, there was a lady next to her and she'd shared with her. And there would never been any you know, voicing of, of faith in Christ. And she, she took her hand and she was say, asking her, you know, as quietly as she could, if she would trust Christ as her Savior. And she said, you know, if you, if you do, squeeze my hand. You know that story? Yeah. And, and the woman squeezed her hand. And that was the last contact she ever had with that woman. Because they took Corey Tinboom and let her out. She was released. And that woman ended up going to her death. Yeah. In a short time. Dear skeptic, would we convince you in such a short time? The answer is we would. We would sure try. We would make every effort. It doesn't have to take a decade. It doesn't have to take months You can be a thief on a cross hanging there and just be in Jesus' presence for a matter of moments, a matter of minutes and hours, and and that can be enough to persuade you that this truly is the Son of God. 
When we tell the gospel, it's not merely to suggest a hypothetical possible response. It is a call to hear and, be, and, to, and to believe. You know, if you do this, Christian, you'll be accused of proselytizing. You ever hear that word? Doesn't that just drip with something awful? Like, ah, no, I don't want to be, I don't know what it is, but that sounds awful. That sounds like something that you have to go through prep for and, and you know, be put under anesthesia. I don't, I don't want to be guilty of proselytizing. Yeah, you do. If you mean it rightly, because it just means leading someone to conversion. To get them from not believing to believing, from not being a follower of Christ to being a follower of Christ. Yes, we would convince you. We speak passionately. Here's Paul's response. It is pound for pound one of the most passionate, tender, beautiful, forceful responses in the scripture of calling someone, really calling someone to believe in Christ. Look at it with me. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. Isn't that wonderful? We can be so apologetic about the gospel as if we barely wanted it ourselves. Like, hey, you don't want the gospel. It's radioactive itching powder, but you might like it. I mean, it'll make your skin fall off and itch, but you, you, you don't want the gospel, do you? No, I didn't think so. Okay. Right? That's kind of how we sometimes come across when we try to talk. Like, like we're trying to force something upon them that is just so awful, but it'll be for your good in the long run. That that's how we feel about it. But Paul's pressing Agrippa to believe in it. And not just Agrippa, not just Bernice and Festus, but every single person there. And what is he telling them? How is he persuading them? Because he's telling them, look, I wouldn't trade places with any of you this day. You're up there. You know, you're sitting in the balcony. You're, you got the good seats, you know, and you got your fans, and you're in the shade. I'm down here in the heat in chains. But you know what? I, w- I would wish for you that you could know what I know, to know Christ. Is that hard sell evangelism? Is that manipulative? Why is Paul persuasive and how is he powerful? It's not because he's telling them a little Johnny story, you know, to play on their emotions. What he's saying to them is even as I stand here in this unenviable position of of making my defense for my life and being in chains, as bad as that might appear, it is better to be me and to know Christ than to have freedom and to be you. That's how good Christ is. Jesus is so good that we would not trade anyone what they have in exchange for Christ. You can have all of the world, as the song says, but give me Jesus. That's the passion that that, that people need to see, is the worth of Christ, the value of Christ to you. So similar to what Paul said to the Philippians, he wrote, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's one thing to read those words and be powerfully affected by the word of God in in the book of Philippians. But can you imagine what it must have been like to have actually been there and to have seen this man 
so oppressed, having been in prison for two years, saying, yeah, yeah, I would. I would persuade you. I would wish that you could be just like me, yet without chains. The world derisively calls that proselytizing. I call that passion, passion for Jesus. And then if we were this passionate and this persuasive, everyone would believe, right? They'd all be convinced. Yeah, no, that's not quite how that works. The world is under the sway of the evil one. The world is in darkness, and and John says that men loved evil, and they wouldn't come into the light because their deeds were evil. So no matter how well we speak, there's not a guarantee when we talk to the skeptics that we will always somehow win the conversation. Were any of these people one to Christ? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I've run through this before. I'll run through it again. But uh, Festus died a couple years after this, just suddenly, maybe a heart attack or something of that nature. Agrippa, he was just a survivor. He held on all the way through the destruction of Jerusalem. That was coming in about a 10-year period of time. And, uh, and he survived that. He managed to stay on the good side of the Romans during the fall of Jerusalem and, and all of the rest, the destruction of the temple. Bernice, his sister, she had an affair with Titus, the general that destroyed Jerusalem. And then when he became emperor, she went to Rome hoping that he would kind of take up with her again. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm not interested. That's what we know about from history of those three. That doesn't sound like any of them came to the Lord. And I don't know about the unnamed individuals there. But we speak regardless. We speak regardless. It says, then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if, it, if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Paul won, in one sense, Paul won in the sense of his defense. He was judged by these people to be innocent, and yet, at the end of the day, he's going to end up going to Rome because once that was set into motion, there was, that was irrevocable. That was going to happen. Here, the greatest mind of early Christendom gave it all he had. He had seen Christ miraculously in a way that others, even though they didn't see Jesus and couldn't make out the words, they were aware that something miraculous was happening and then they saw the change in him. He, he had abundant evidence on his side. He had learned all of these languages. He was, he, his learning was so immense and yet it's kind of like Eleanor Rigby's funeral service, if you remember the Beatles. When, when they left, no one was saved. The power of Paul, his persuasive ability, and yet, as far as we can see, no one was saved. Is there anything in that for us? Can we take anything away from that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And that is, we have the same truth. We have the same rational faith. We are like Paul in that, above all men, we are most blessed because we have Christ, no matter how bad you feel today, no matter, no matter how awful your situation is, and some of you are going through difficulties, some of you going through great hardships, some of you probably it's a stubbed toe or whatever else, but we, we all feel bad for ourselves, don't we? Sometimes we, 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 it doesn't matter what you're going through, Christian, 
In one sense, it doesn't matter because right now, as you are with Christ, you are in the most enviable position of all. You have, and it's knowing that, having that passion to, to be able to share that. We cannot know if our words or our conversations will bring about conversion, but what we can do is we can speak and we can speak boldly and we can speak confidently, persuasively, passionately. And some will, and some will believe, but we speak. So we speak to you, dear skeptic, if you are here today. Um, Believing in Jesus is not equivalent to believing in a flying spaghetti monster. Flying spaghetti monsters, that's just irrational. There's no, there's no discernible proof or evidence for such a thing. But there is, there is evidence. Jesus Christ truly lived. That is recorded by various historians. He lived, he, he spoke, he taught. He lived a sinlessly perfect life. He died on a Roman cross. He was put to death there. We know the names of the people who conspired against him. We know the name of the Roman uh, procurator who, who gave the order. He was buried and on the third day, he rose from the grave, and the tomb was empty. And, and just as Paul said to Agrippa, these things were known. They weren't done in a corner. They were public. They were public. And Paul, Paul, who was a great persecutor of the church, saw Jesus himself, and it turned him around. We, we confidently proclaim that to you. But more than anything, more than anything we can say to you today as believers in Jesus Christ that there is nothing in all the world that is good enough to turn us away from him. There's nothing comparable to knowing Jesus. You can have all of the world. You can have all of the world, but give me Jesus. We pray that you'll hear that. We pray that you'll hear that, that, that passion, that conviction, and that God will open your heart, that you'll hear and turn and believe in Christ and be saved. And have that passion and have that joy yourself. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we come to you now and we, we acknowledge, Lord, that, that at times the passion isn't there as it should be. We get caught up in so many things, so many things that, that wrap their tendrils around us and choke the, the joy out of our life and And sometimes we can't even speak of the gospel with joy the way we want to. So Lord, forgive us for that as Christians. Help us to see that even if we're in chains, and even if we're fighting for our lives, that having Christ, it makes us us kings. It, 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 It gives us such confidence and joy and the greatest treasure of all. He is the greatest treasure. And Lord, help us to convey that. We pray that there'd be somebody today hearing this. Um, Lord, we don't, we don't know the names of those who are listening to Paul. We don't know necessarily who might be hearing this truth today. But we pray that hearing it, they would believe the gospel, turn, repent, believe in Christ, and be saved. In his name we ask it. Amen.